0: Welcome, my name is Patrick Curran, and along with Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. Today's episode is second part of a two-part series where we explore the grant review process. In part one, we talked about the infrastructure of NIH and IES and how you submit a grant and it travels through the system. In today's episode, Greg and I talk about how we approach grant applications from a reviewer's perspective and how we write reviews and recommendations that we have for people who are writing their own grants. In addition, we talk about A Thousand monkeys. Stages of Grief, Southwest versus Spirit Airlines, Grousing Old Men, The Word, However, Red Bull, and Banana Peels. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, Greg. We are back to part two of our two-disc set on Grant Review.
1: The sequel in 3D. Uh, no. Okay, all right, fine. Okay,
0: okay. Last night, I was looking through some things, and I found what I thought was kind of a cool puzzler. I have twin teenage daughters, and one of my girls brought this to me, and we were talking about it, and it sounded very fun. And I thought I would pitch it to you, Oy. and we will allow listener—
1: Oh, man. Notice,
0: singular. We uh, will allow listener
1: <laughs> your mom,
0: to think about it as well.
1: Mrs. C. Right,
0: this is— Yet another in uh, the case that is being built uh, against us for plagiarism of car talk, guys. In fairness to us, these are quantitatively related puzzlers. Okay. All right. Sometimes they'd have like a flat tire or something like that. And this is like real science here. (laughs) All right. So. Okay. Are you ready for what a 15-year-old stumped me with?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, so I I appreciate that you admitting right up front that you were stumped. So that's good. All right, good. I'm ready. I'm yep. ready. Bring it on.
0: Okay. You yourself, you are going to be the focus of this.
1: Okay. All and, right. and do you want me to listen to the whole thing or do you want me to interrupt you when I know that I'm not going to understand stuff that you're saying? We, so you
0: mean like you did just, just now? Just now. Okay. Yeah. Why don't you just keep doing that? Okay. Because if you didn't, I would think there was something wrong with your audio feed and then I would be worried about that. All right. You are going to hire somebody to help you. So you're going to hire an RA. And you need seven days of work. Mm -hmm. You are going to pay them one gold piece a day. All right. Now, here's (laughs) the trick is your RA demands that at the end of each day, they be paid in full for how many days they've worked. So on day one, they go home with one gold piece. On day two, they go home with two gold pieces Mm -hmm. throughout the week. You can't prepay them. You can't postpay them. They have to go home with exactly that many gold pieces. Now, you have a grant from IES... And as part of the funding, they gave you a single gold bar, all right, as they often do. (laughs) So it has seven numbers separated by six equally spaced little marks. So there's number one and a little mark, number two and a little mark, all the way down to seven. All right, so single gold bar numbered one to seven with six little marks in between each number. (laughs) Now, here's the challenge. How can you pay your RA the exact amount each day using the fewest cuts possible on the gold bar. So you know you could do it if you cut it into seven pieces, right? So there are six cuts. You could just give them a piece each day. But that's not the answer. The answer is, what are the fewest number of cuts? So every day they could go home with that many pieces of gold to do your work that you then put your name on and says was your own.
1: So I will ask a couple of questions. But then I think we have to leave it to our listener, right? That's exactly right. So I don't want to give away the answer, which... Right, I,
0: right. You <laughs> wouldn't I, want to do that. Right. And I wouldn't either no. after I Googled the answer. Right. I wouldn't want to give right. that away.
1: But my first question is, do they need to be the same size gold pieces that the people take when they, the student takes in your they head? They don't
0: have to be the same, like, dimensions, so...
1: Okay, they're just marked. Does the student have to hang on to the money, or can they spend it when they get it? I'm not clear on that part.
0: They cannot spend it until the week is
1: complete. Okay, so that, as true to form, the students won't be able to eat for a while. Is that correct? Yeah,
0: well, that's part of being a student, so. Okay,
1: all right, no, I'm just checking. You know,
0: if you're overly obsessed with eating, maybe you shouldn't go to grad school.
1: (laughs) Good, all right, we're on the same page. So I will give my answer to this, sort of, but I don't think it's going to mess up your mom while she's trying to figure this out. Okay, how many cuts would I make? The answer is none because I have an admin who handles all that kind of stuff. All right, okay. done. So my answer is zero, but let's see if someone else has <laughs> has, has a, a better answer. <laughs> so just to clarify, yeah, yeah.
0: you would use your admin to cut the IES bar to pay your RA to do the work that you're going to take credit for.
1: So- I hear so much envy in your voice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I I don't have an admin it is. and I don't have an RA and I don't have a gold bar.
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right, so we leave the problem out there for our listener and will you grace us with a solution the next time we come together?
0: Yes, I'll Google it between now and then and then <laughs> self-righteously tell you what it is okay. uh, because it's on the screen in front of me. Excellent. Yep, give it a thought, and uh, next episode we will tell you what the answer is. All um, right. And it doesn't involve your uh, administrative assistant. Okay. You work at a state university. How do you have a, a, an administrative <laughs> assistant?
1: I know things, man. <laughs> Jeez. Jeez.
0: <laughs> So this is disc two of our prior uh, uh, episode, which we hope you were able to join us. And and if you're waiting in midstream, uh, this one is a standalone, but uh, you could pop back and listen to it, uh, the earlier one, if you're so inclined. What the pair of episodes are focused on the grant review process. And we looked at National Institutes of Health and the Institute of Education Sciences. And in the prior episode, we talked about what's the infrastructure? How does a grant kind of travel through the system? What are the different reviews? groups, and how does it end up on somebody's desk to review. In today's episode, we're going to say, all right, I'm assigned and Greg is assigned our reviews. We have our grants. We're three or four weeks out of the review system. How do we approach it? What do we look for? What do we value? What do we raise concerns about? And so that's today's episode.
1: Wow, that was really nice. You you thought about this, didn't you?
0: Um, Right now, I'm watching YouTube videos about cats, and so that was... Don't ask me to repeat it. Have you ever in class said something like the direct interpretation of this, and then you say this long thing, and then a student raises their hand and says, can you repeat that? Yes. Yeah. And my answer is always, <laughs> no. That that was Not, it, There's man. no that chance. A,
1: that is right. a one and done. One thousand monkeys typing at a typewriter <laughs> yeah. could, could possibly come up with that again. That's
0: my standard answer is, uh-huh. no, I
1: cannot. Mm, if no. you didn't get it the first time, yeah. I'm sorry. Okay. No, that was, that was very, very nice. Um, so we're at disc two. Uh, we we used the example last time of The Wall. Um, for those of you who are old enough to remember Pink Floyd, The Wall, uh, we're on disc two, which I will just let you know, appropriately, has some of the following songs. Is there anybody out there? <laughs> Com- comfortably numb, of course. Okay. And run like hell. <laughs> so those... Those are on disc two. So there you go, mom. Comfortably (laughs) numb.
0: Okay, buddy. You want to start us off? What do you do? You get a pile of grants and you sigh when the
1: email comes into your inbox. What happens next? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Denial. Right, I let other things pile up on top of it, and it's it's like an unpaid bill. When you get an envelope in the mail, if you still get mail bills, and then it just sits on the table in the entryway of your house, or whatever, and you walk past it each day, and there's that. Oh god, I got to deal with that. I got to. So that's the way I feel about having the grants in my inbox. Um, so I'm. I will tell you. After the, you know, five stages of grief or whatever that I go through.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. I know that. I never get past anger. I just...
1: No, except that you bargain when it comes to COIs, I think. (laughs) That's your bargaining (laughs) stage. Okay, that's fair enough. I bargain out of a place of anger. Yeah, right. Well, so I can talk about how I approach the review process, or I can start with the criteria that that the agency with which I'm most familiar uses, IES. Should we talk about just criteria and general scoring systems to start and then dig in? Tell me your
0: rubric. What are the scoring rubrics?
1: Okay, so um, at IES, on each grant proposal that we get, there are four criteria. One is significance, another research plan, another personnel, and then resources, And I think those are fairly self-explanatory, and we'll probably delve into each of those a little bit when it comes to some of our recommendations. Uh, And then there is an overall score that you will assign. The scoring system at IES is you just want to slap somebody. I'll just – there's no other way around it. Well, I I can't imagine. You know, was it like the last thing on a committee's agenda, and people were just like, "Yeah, okay, that's fine, that's fine." Um, <laughs>
0: Got to catch a plane. Yeah, yeah.
1: So the <laughs> for each of the criteria, what you're going to do is assign a score from one to seven, um, which is reasonable enough. Where a one is that it had it was poor, whether in terms of significance, research plan, personnel, resources, all the way up to a seven, which is excellent. And then you assign an overall score. And the overall score is not on a 1 to 7 scale. You know why? Because that would make too much sense. (laughs) It's on a 1 to 5 scale. Okay, you can adjust 1 to 5. But you know what? Let's make this more interesting. Let's flip the direction of the scale, shall we? So now a 5 is poor and a 1 is outstanding. So you got to keep all this in your head when you're a reviewer going into all of the scoring. All right, what about you? Okay, (laughs) that one's hard to top. I have to admit,
0: begrudgingly, that almost entirely I feel very good about NIHs. And I think it's Mm -hmm. very thoughtful and very consistent. There is one overall numeric. And then there are five Mm subdomains that we do. So the first one is overall impact. And they give a very clear description, the likelihood for a project to exert a sustained, powerful influence on the field. Mm -hmm. All right, so I like that. So that's like a holistic umbrella, just the overall impact. And then there are five specific criteria. And there's a lot of overlap, of course, with yours. Mm -hmm. Significance, investigators, innovation, approach, and environment, and we can talk more in a few minutes about kind of how each of those percolates up. The thing I like about it, although it's a little hard to get your head around when you're doing it, is the overall impact you are explicitly told is not a mean of the sub-criteria. At first, that frustrated me Mm because I saw it as kind of like a grade for the whole class and it's based on, you know, each of the components throughout the semester being the criteria. And it's not. It's It's like pooling over the project as a whole is what's the potential to impact the field. And then you have the subdimensions under it. The numerics are also very clearly defined. Inexplicably, they're all on the same metric, all the same ordinal levels, and all in the same direction. That is weird. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, I'll help you out with that later. Okay. Uh, ranges one to nine. One is best, nine is worst, five pegs in the middle. And they give very, I won't read them here, but they give very clear descriptions about one, two, and three scores falling high, four, five, six medium, seven, eight, nine low. One thing I really like is even a few years back, they were having a great inflation problem is lots of ones and twos. When you go in now, you're really encouraged to everybody starts at a five. And then you have to justify whether you go to the left or right of that. You start with a five. And then if you see lots of good things, you start working four, three, two, and so on.
1: I like that. That's a nice way to anchor. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you for just a second and say that at IES, there, there is a bit more specificity attached to the number ranges, which they do help you out. It's still crazy the way it goes. Um, But what you just mentioned is really interesting to me that NIH has made a concerted effort to try to anchor you back toward the middle because of the drift. I have felt the drift and um, I have sat on, uh, I've been a standing member of NIH panels as well as IES. And if, if you ever watch the Olympics and whether it's, let's say, gymnastics or ice skating, there's one tiny wobble. You're like, well, it's over it's over. Get, get the hook. So, so like if, if, a you know, if an ice skater just wobbles on a landing, I just, I just want to have a big hook come out and pull that person off the ice. Cause you know, the person has no shot. And that's the way I started to feel in the grant review process when I'm in the room and people are talking about their score. And, and if everybody is getting, you know, ones, ones, and then someone gets a two, you're like, get the hook, you know, <laughs> It's a two. Um, so I, I like that there's been a concerted effort to, to pull people back off the ceiling and create more variability there.
0: Should I do my old man scene now?
1: Yeah. Um, um, as opposed so, to what you've been doing. Yes, yes, yes. Please go ahead.
0: So the sub criteria, I really like the overall impact. Uh, the significance, you know, of course is important. The investigators, the approach, that's the core of the design. The one that drives me insane is innovation. And so I did not hear you and your IES criteria at least explicitly use the word no, innovation. You're,
1: you're absolutely right, and we uh, so we we overlap pretty much perfectly on all mm-hmm. of the others. There might be some difference in verbiage in terms of how they're how they're characterized mm-hmm. in the different organizations, but the overlap on those others is great. But there is nothing explicit about innovation uh, that is that is here. It might get discussed in the room. In some sort of, you know, in a theme that whether or not something is bringing something new. But yeah, go ahead, unleash the full force of your old man. Bring it.
0: There's a whole subdimension. ...of innovation, and I won't describe... ...they've got, you know, a... ...well, actually, let me see. I've got my pile of papers. Does the application challenge and seek to shift current research and clinical practice paradigms... ...by utilizing novel theoretical concepts, approaches, or methodologies? This drives me insane. Because as I write a grant, and I've been very fortunate to have a number of them from NIH... Mm -hmm. ...you know that this is an important element... And you literally have a subparagraph with a heading, Innovation. And you talk about how you're doing, away in a, in, you're doing your project in a way that nobody's done before. All right, now travel with me for a moment. I love Southwest. I will fly them forever and ever. All right, so you get on a Southwest and you settle in and the pilot comes on. And he says, welcome to Southwest Airlines. We know you have choices in the airline industry and we are glad that you were able to join us today. I am very excited because today we have installed a wholly innovative system on our aircraft. It's never been used before. (laughs) No other planes have it. No other airline uses it. And today we are going to try it out, and so we are so glad that you're here to join us for this experience. What the hell? You would never get on an aircraft in your life if every single plane you got on was a paradigm shift in yeah. innovation. It drives me a wow. little insane.
1: because I would rather fly Spirit Airways, but anyway, just seriously,
0: <laughs> I would still take the innovation <laughs> than okay. on Southwest. All right, it's close. But, oh, great! Now we're going to get sued by Spirit Airlines. Uh huh. I am not anti-innovation. I am not anti-advancement. But we are intellectually slapped to say how every project is somehow doing something that nobody has ever done before. And so there's my old man grousing. I will set that aside for now.
1: Yeah, that's a... Well, I, I think it's reasonable grousing. It's a It's a really hard and nebulous standard. And even maybe just misplaced in so many ways you know I, I don't need i don't need something to be shiny and new i want it to address an important question and do it in the most proper way whether it uses a, a brand new whether it uses a 787 max or wait what's the plane that we should
0: 737 700 max. 700 max. For God's max sake
1: i'm sorry
0: hancock
1: <laughs> sorry can i talk Yes, you're back on. All right, thank you. For those of you who don't know, Patrick has a master switch where he cuts off my microphone so he doesn't always let... Okay, I'm back.
0: (laughs) It's a control issue and I realize that, but, you know, go with it. Okay. Okay, so anyway, now we have our criteria. We have our numerical rubric. The very first step, for both of us, is to procrastinate and deny. Yep. All right, so you get the email, delete it as soon as you can, (laughs) and uh, scramble to go teach class because you procrastinated about that. At some point, though, fear kicks in, and you got to start doing these. So what do you do?
1: Yeah, so I, even though I'm aware of the criteria and they're sort of floating around in the back of my head, I don't use them as a filter to go through each grant. What I will do instead is just read it almost as if I were reading any other manuscript that I have to review and I start making notes you know I like this this could be strengthened what about this issue that you haven't thought about this makes me worry about this etc and so I come up with what amounts to a review and then I'll read it again And I'll do the same thing. I won't read it again in the same day. Um, I'll probably go back and, you know, I'll do this with all of the proposals, and then I might come back to them a few days later, a week later, depending on how much time I've (laughs) allowed myself. Um, And I'll make actually a fresh batch of notes that usually overlaps really highly with what I had. Uh, And then I have all of these things that I have to do something with. And for me, it becomes a cut and paste activity. Uh, it becomes a matter of me saying, this is really about significance, this one over here is more about resources, etc." Th- then what I also realized though, is that there are some areas that I might not have been attentive to. Uh, so if I, uh, if I left something out here and there, the way the IES review process works is that you also can't just be uh, a grumpy old man you can't just complain about stuff they also want you to address in each of the criteria what some strengths are um so it might be the case that you have just really really hated some aspect of the grant and so you've got this massive block of comments in the you know the needs improvement side but you still have to say something nice. And and sometimes I'm really hard pressed to say something, you know, and it usually comes out to something more generic, like, um, this is an important problem that is worth, you know, that is worth addressing, blah, blah, blah. Um, On the other hand, sometimes I have really, really nice set of, uh, of things to say that fill up the very positive box. And I, and I don't have something negative to say. That often happens when it comes to evaluating the personnel. It looks like a great research team. And so I will just put in the, in the you know, needs improvement box that um, I have nothing, nothing to add here. Does it work something similar for you?
0: Exactly the same. It's good you said that about strengths and weaknesses because I, I didn't clarify is we get as reviewers a template uh, to fill in uh, for your review. And so it has those, the overall impact and then it has the five criterion that I described. Each one is uh, has subsetted into strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And it's nice. NIH has really streamlined and tried to standardize things where they really encourage you to use almost a bulleted kind of list. So instead of writing a long narrative, you have a box and it says significant score equals and you put your score in of one to nine. And then it has strengths and their bullets and weaknesses and their bullets. And you kind of do a greatest hits, you know, two or three things that are most salient. You described exactly the process that I do. I will kind of wait till I, I like doing these in the evening. I don't work at home a lot, but in grant review, I, I sometimes do. The kids will go to bed and I'll put a little, you know, Miles Davis on the stereo and and uh, get a big glass of ice water and just sit down and read them from front to back.
1: So you still have energy in the evening after the kids have gone to bed to do this. Good for you.
0: Yeah. See, I would say it's because I don't have the energy. It's like, okay, I have now the bandwidth.
1: (laughs) I'm tapped out. I think, what
0: can I do? Grant review. You know what it is more? um, I don't do well when my thought process is interrupted. And Uh so if I try to do it in my office... You know, I'll read two or three pages and then somebody will come by or the phone will ring. You know, I have such a tenuous grasp intellectually on anything. I don't want to, like, break that current. But yeah, I'll do it in the evening. It's nice, quiet, relaxed. And so I'll read it as I would a manuscript and do exactly what you described. I'll make notes in the margins. But I do get a holistic sense of the grant. And then just as you say, I'll move to the template and I'll move the different, mm-hmm. you know, positives and negatives to each respective square that I'm supposed to write it into. Do
1: you think about the holistic score? How do, you, how do you think about that relative to the criteria? I know that you said the scoring is is meant to be pulled apart, but do you think about it like this was really a good grant and then that filters how you look at things at the criteria or do the criteria more inform the way you think about things holistically
0: i have a pretty good sense of my feel about the grant as a whole before i turn to the criterion mm-hmm. you know and it's it's a, a holistic subjective kind of feeling of yeah this is interesting this is important you know what's what's funny is after a lot of years of doing this is I have almost a one item assessment just mentally mm-hmm. that I use that highly correlates with how I write the subsequent review and that is do I want to see the outcome of the project these things are so hard as you give reviews the same same thing with uh, article reviews is you know, a, a lot of times you never know what, ha- what becomes of a, a project, what becomes of a, a, an article. I'll finish reading a grant and I'll have this sense of, oh, that's really cool. I would like to see what they find or, eh, you know, I, I'm fine not to see the outcome of this project. Mm-hmm. And it's either because it's kind of uninteresting or maybe not optimally designed or just not addressing a question that I find that important. And so I find that as a real motivator of, could I teleport ahead in three years? Would I want to see the key paper that came off of this or not?
1: Well, what I will say on that point is that, and this is going to tie into where we're going, that a lot of that is going to fall on the authors themselves to make you want to see the results of their study, right? If they can't sell it, they've got one shot. They have to sell it to you, the reviewer. So part of, I mean, part of it could be that you don't bring content, you know, as much content knowledge to it to go, ooh, Rhesus Monkeys, you know, or whatever, whatever you're reading the review. I have actually been on a panel where I had to review. I mean, theoretically, I could have been on a panel that could have been, okay, I'll just shut up. Uh It was
0: actually submitted
1: by Rhesus Monkeys. (laughs) Wow. It was, it contained the solution to your gold bar problem, which was (laughs) (laughs) incredible. incredible anyway uh that's that's my tie back thank you very much everybody anyway you know what i was going to say is that it's really incumbent upon the researchers to try and uh help you contextualize why this has value and for me you know i sit on two different types of panels i sit on a methodological panel uh, where i do bring a lot of the content knowledge there and then i sometimes sit on panels that i'd characterize as more applied where i'm there as a methodologist so So, you know, if, if someone tells me we're, we're teaching kids to read, you know, who am I to say that this is unimportant? And I might or might not care about that particular intervention. uh, But, but I still think it's up to the reviewers to, uh, or up to the writers to characterize their project in terms of importance. So I, so it's not all about you. It's a, you should put some of the burden on them, I would say.
0: And I totally agree. And just to clarify for younger folks, that's not to be taken as you somehow have to slap lipstick on a pig to make it... (laughs) All my grad students know I have a diehard rule that nobody is allowed... There are two things. You can't leave a banana peel in a trash can in my office. That's like a zero tolerance. (laughs) And you can't say anything is sexy. You can't say... This is a growth mixture modeling is sexy. Like I will immediately terminate you from the program and saying that. So it's not what Greg is saying is not that it's on you to like somehow sell it in that kind of way. It is designing a study and identifying a question that is important, engaging, and interesting. And it's not Greg and my job to distill that out of the application. You need to lay it out in a way that's unambiguously
1: clear to the reader. I don't know. I think you're a little rigid on the banana peel thing.
0: But yeah, yeah,
1: I think that's... I can see that. (laughs) That's,
0: <laughs> but it's okay. my office, so there you go.
1: All right, so I just made a little list, and maybe we could go back and forth about things. And yeah, I don't, okay. I don't have any great order to these. I have some that are broader, and I have some that are more specific. Um, but let me just throw one out there that drives me crazy, and and. Maybe it falls in the significance section. Maybe it falls more in the design research plan section. It doesn't really matter. It still just annoys me. Um, and that is that usually in a grant, someone has to lay out very specific aims. And sometimes they're called goals. Sometimes they're called aims. But, but it really defines the, the framework of the study that's going to be done. One of the things that drives me crazy is when the aims or the goals are so dependent that the later ones can't function if something goes wrong in the early ones. And I'm going to give you a variation on that in just a second. But uh, imagine someone has as goal one, and this might make sense to listeners, it might not, but imagine we're going to do a latent class analysis to try to identify, you know, the classes that exist, blah, blah, blah. And then all the subsequent aims presume the existence of those classes, you know, and my question is, well, what, what happens if you don't get those classes? And the whole thing falls apart. So I don't like these kind of house of cards uh, designs. I see them too often. Um, another one that's related to that is when one of the aims actually can wind up undermining another one. And here's an example that might make sense to some folks. When they have, let's say in aim one, they're looking at the relations among a set of variables, and, and the whole buildup to their study has been about moderation, about how the relations might differ in different groups and all of that. And then they get to a subsequent aim where they say, and, now, and we're going to look at moderation of things. And so my take on that is if you think that some variables moderate these relations, or if you think these relations function differently in different groups, males, females, et cetera, then the whole group analysis in my mind means nothing. I don't need to see that. I don't need to know that X has a path on Y when you don't think the path of X on Y applies to anybody. You think it applies differently to people in this group, that group, or people with different levels of things. So sometimes the aims wind up sequentially undermining the ones that have gone before to the point where, you know, where... I don't. I don't actually want to know the results of the first ones because you yourself don't believe them in the subsequent aims. So I. So I'd like to see my, the overall message is a really good coherence among the aims that they work together. They don't undermine each other. Uh, so I, I don't know if that if that ever comes up on your radar or not.
0: Very much so, and and I completely agree with that. And it actually taps into. A smaller uh, thing that I look for is directly related to this. I learned almost all of my life philosophy from Clint Eastwood. <laughs> uh, you know, watching the old spaghetti westerns and then and then the Dirty Harry movies. And a classic line is is that you have to know your own limitations. I think that exactly holds here, is in any application, what are you really able to do? What are you not able to do? I'm cautious about an aim that has to be established before you move on to the other ones, because if you flame out in the first one, you can't move forward. I admire being aspirational. I don't mind if somebody is saying, you know, we intend to do this. We're going to try to, you know, look for these classes or develop this new measure or whatnot. Mm -hmm. You know what I love to see is where an application will say, however, we understand that we may not be able to fulfill this goal. If we are not, we will do the following. And you have a backup plan. And uh, I really like backup plans.
1: Oh, that, that to me is a symptom of a very well thought out proposal that they have their plan B and their plan C. Um, articulated as well i that's a great one i didn't even have that on my list but Mm. but that's something i um i really do like to see thanks for bringing that up so a bigger ticket
0: one um i went to grad school at arizona state university about 142 years ago Mm -hmm. and um i don't know how many years of schooling i've done you know a dozen 16 21 24 years of school I can say the best class I ever took in 24 years, and I can say this without hesitation, was at ASU in my first year of grad school, a guy named Clark Presson. He is still at ASU, and he taught research methods. Mm -hmm. It was the best class I've ever had. One of the things that he just hammered into us, it was a good old Cooking Campbell class. If you don't know who Cooking Campbell is, go figure it out. Mm -hmm. 1979 was their classic, and then Will Mm -hmm. Shadish uh, uh, rewrote it, so there's a Shaddish, Cook, and Campbell 01, I think, maybe. I'm forgetting the exact uh, date. I frame my entire reading in terms of internal and external validity. All right, And so internal validity is, are we properly ascribing our causal mechanism that we've identified? Are we doing that correctly? So if we say that the new intervention is leading to a reduction in depression symptoms, and that's our conclusion, internal validity is the extent to which we're right about that. Um, We undermine internal validity is if children were allowed to self-select into the treatment, and then we saw a reduction in depression symptoms, but it was because of some child-level characteristic that governed them going into treatment and Mm -hmm. not the treatment itself, right? So that's internal. External validity is the extent to which we can generalize our findings across person, place, and time. You can get into some really wonderful discussions about the hydraulic balance between internal and external validity. Because often, as you increase internal validity, you actually decrease external validity because you're becoming more and more specific. So th- that was prattling on a little bit, but I try to frame my reading in terms of that as, is the sample, are the measures, is the data analytic frame, is that going to enhance the internal validity where we make accurate statements about the causal processes that we believe to exist and are the findings going to be applicable to anybody other than the couple of hundred kids in your particular sample? Mm -hmm. So I try to put everything within that kind of framework, and I thank Clark Presson for that.
1: That's very nice. Um, Can I throw another one out there? (laughs) Please. Okay. Uh, This is not just one. I'm going to lump three together, and there's a reason I'm going to—although I'll I'll pull one apart here in just a little bit. When I sit on applied panels, I find that there are themes to my comments, things that are just not addressed, and so I can— mentally, uh, mentally draw from other reviews I've done because I say the same thing and I hear the same themes in the room when I'm there. (sighs) Here I go. The quality of the measures or instruments is not addressed. The sample size is not adequately justified. The multi-level nature of the data is not accommodated in the analyses. So this just gets said over and over and over. Now I will say over the last Ten or fifteen years, these things have gotten better in part because agencies have made it more explicit that people need to take care of these things. Um, but I will say, and you and I t- talked about power analysis earlier, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I have some vague opinions yeah, about yeah, power yes, analysis. Right, right. <laughs> the the one that I'll the one that I'll just uh, I'll expand on a little bit has to do with the quality of the measures or instruments that are being used. When I'm sitting on an applied panel and someone says something like, and we're going to develop our own instrument, or we're going to use an instrument that has been used previously but not in this particular context, I I would actually like them to address the quality of information they're going to get from this and help me understand how they're going to model it, how they're going to validate it as a measure, how they're going to establish it's a reliability, it has some reliability in terms of scores, if they're going to generate scores from it. And this is so often overlooked. Now, to be fair, it's an, you know, we tend to look for things that we are most familiar with. Uh, So maybe I'm looking for this because these are issues that I care about in my own life as well. But, but, but just the short, the short version of my message is that not enough attention goes into the quality of the measures that people have. And Everything hinges on the quality of the measures that you have. all right there
0: okay, I love it. goes back to cooking Campbell, construct mm-hmm. validity. Mm-hmm. and it is so interesting on this because a lot of times I will see reasonable measures proposed, but there's a disjoint. This is one of the most common words I use in my own reviews. Uh, dampened enthusiasm is yeah. one, okay. and disjoint. There's a disjoint between the theory and the measures and the inferences or whatnot. And yeah. one is you can actually have very well selected measures that have established psychometric properties and you know meet all of the the criteria that we would have. But they don't actually assess what you just laid out in the introduction Mm -hmm. as the theoretical construct in which you are focused on. Yeah, that's yet another one is just articulate what is your theoretical construct? What are the dimensions of that? Are you looking at self-esteem? Are you looking at executive functioning? And then how are you going to select items that are going to assign numerical values to observations in some principled way? Yep, to me, that's just fundamental, right? It, it's fundamental. And it's one of those things is you blow measurement and you're done. Right? Mm-hmm. There's some other things you can work around, write around, talk about, but if you get your N by P data matrix and those numbers don't represent what you think they do or they do it in some way that is not psychometrically appropriate, you're finished.
1: Nothing else matters.
0: All right, that was point
1: one. What's point two for you? No, I mean the three—the trifecta was the multi-level nature of the data, the justification of sample size, uh. and and measurement. Those are just the things that I routinely see. But the but the only one I really wanted to drill down on uh, was the measurement one. So I, I hand the baton to you, sir. So let me think here. You know, they're they're
0: the the typical ones. The sample, you know, is it that's the external validity part again? It's all cooking, Campbell man. It's just go get cooking, Campbell. All right, here, I'll grouse a little bit as an old man about the statistical analysis. Oh. And what do you mean,
1: oh? I thought it was like about the neighbor kids or something. Oh, no,
0: we'll get to that. Okay. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh another disjoint is between the hypotheses the theoretical model and the proposed hypotheses mm-hmm. and then the statistical models that are proposed to empirically evaluate those hypotheses so one of my beliefs is a lot of us in the social sciences educational sciences were repressed novelists i mean think right now whoever is listening how many of you have thought i i could write i could be an author i could you know i'd love to when i retire write my first novel All right. Or have have drafts
1: of it sitting on your laptop right now. I'm just saying. Okay,
0: Star Trek fan fiction doesn't count.
1: (laughs) Shut up.
0: Shut up. (laughs) But we don't do that, or at least those of us who are stable enough, we don't do that. And so what we do is we put it into our grant applications, and we put it into our, our, our manuscripts, and we write about waxing and waning forces and about circular vortexes that strengthen with time. That's one of my favorite, are an increasing circular vortex where behaviors become more and more coalesced over development. I've read about these things. And then a two-by-two ANOVA is proposed to (laughs) test the circular vortex. Like I said, I will never, ever criticize someone for being aspirational but i will say i admire the hypotheses set forth here (laughs) however there is a distinct disjoint between the nature of the hypotheses made and the analytic plan that will be used to test these if i had a drawer full of rubber stamps of my most common critiques one of my most common is the data analytic plan does not map well onto the aims and specific hypotheses.
1: And that would dampen your enthusiasm.
0: That would dampen <laughs> my enthusiasm for the project in its current form.
1: <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's, it's like you just took that scra- scraping of my brain because <laughs> I think that's the exact phrase that I might have used. Um, all right. Can I jump in? Because I think that's a great one. Is that all right? Please do. Okay, I just have some. I have some small. I mean, that that's a, that's a great one that you just said. Perfect. And and the fact that you could work circular vortex into the conversation was amazing. And it, so I just crossed off my elliptical vortex comment uh, that I oh, was yeah. going to do. Let's see. Let's see what you think about this. I will often. This is going to sound terribly self-serving. I will often recommend that they get a methodologist on board. It's and I mean, do you we, include your email I, their... that's right here's my, <laughs> my cell phone my um, <laughs> It's not just a matter of feeding statisticians it's that I so sometimes people propose things and they do a they do a very nice job and you can even see a pretty decent methodological hand in how things are described. There are occasions where I really worry about what's going to happen on the back end, so yep. You've designed it reasonably well. I might be worried about matters of attrition. There might be some measurement issues that I think could arise in vivo that one doesn't anticipate. And so sometimes I will suggest that maybe it would be good to just have someone as part of your personnel team to help in the in the, you know, we hope it doesn't happen event of the following things. So I I will actually recommend I mean, I recommend other people, too. I might recommend that I think you need a, uh, a therapist on board to deal with these potential fallout issues or all of that. But, but I do wind up recommending a statistician fairly often when I see that there's a complexity that is not obviously well handled among the personnel.
0: Yep. I totally agree. And sometimes I will cast that, as you say, in more of a team science kind of perspective, the whole field is moving toward you need a group of experts who, you know, especially as we drink the neuroscience Kool-Aid and, mm-hmm. and you know, you need a, a kind of some biological neuro expert, you need a quantitative expert, you need a clinician to help with Issues that may arise, and so I I completely agree on that. Do not
1: say it takes a village. Please do not say it takes a village. You're gonna you're gonna say it.
0: How well do you know me, man? Not at all. That is a phrase that shall never exit (laughs) ever.
1: Exit my mouth. It is the banana peel in the garbage can of phrases. phrases. (laughs) Okay. I think I think yeah. it's your turn.
0: Yeah. I think I'm starting to be where I'm on the couch and I queue up the criteria and I start, as you say, I pick things and start filling them in the different areas. So the significance of the project, the investigators, innovation.
1: <clears throat> mm-hmm.
0: We are so excited today. We're going to see if we can get to Los Angeles on one engine. <laughs> it's <laughs> never been done before. huh I guess this would be my broad exit one, and this is who I learned from my advisor, who is Lori Chasson, who is the only one who stands between me uh, being where I am now and a crack dealer. We've talked about that in a prior episode. Um, (laughs) Her mantra was, beat the reviewer to the critique. And so now, kind of talking to the listeners, thinking about submitting your own application... I really like it when an application will say, it could be argued that whatever, you know, these measures are not ideally suited, or by examining the subsample that our our inferences are restricted. Here's a a puzzler, a very brief puzzler. What is the most important word of all of science is the word however. (laughs) It could be argued that these measures are too narrowly defined, however...
1: Wait, semicolon.
0: I do use semicolons, but a however, I will use following a period because it gives greater emphasis on the start of a new independent clause. However, our prior pilot studies have shown or... It's like lay out what the concern is, and it actually pisses me off a little bit because you want to have some good critiques to have in your written review, and I despise it when an author takes one of my critiques away from (laughs) it. I will write out uh, measures may be too narrowly defined. And they say, it could be argued that our measures are too narrowly defined. However, if these don't work in the way that we anticipate, we will aggregate these in a broader construct and use these in the analysis. And it annoys me because I have to scratch that one off and come up with something new. So if you're writing a grant Beat the reviewer to the critique. Because some authors will try to bury it, right? And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, embrace it. What is a potential limitation? Identify it and then tell the reviewer why it's not a limitation.
1: That's a nice suggestion. I like that. I have a a bunch of little things that I'm just going to vomit up. And, uh, that I just feel like I have to say them out loud, but, but I don't know that any of them needs, uh, needs any expansion, but, but I'll feel better. So this is more of a therapy session for me. Can I just, can I just barf them up at you?
0: Vomit away. All right, sir. This is our new special edition, (laughs) Greg's Emetic
1: Response to Grant Review. So go ahead. All right, here we go. Uh, let's see. In the resources section, that's what we call it, resources. You call it environment, I believe. Um, Get people who will tell us things like the number of square feet in their library right <laughs> it's just they have this boilerplate section about their university and I read that and I go that's really interesting but I have no idea what at all that has to do with your particular grant so people who fail to make a connection between the resources they have at their disposal and the actual project to me is annoying don't do that don't tell me about your library tell me about what you've got and what that how that Comes to bear on your uh, on your project. That's chunk one. <laughs> um, with regard to personnel, if you are a more junior scholar who doesn't have a ton of experience in the area that you are proposing uh, to do research in. I'm okay with that, but sometimes it's a good strategy to have a senior mentor serving on a panel that you have assembled or a, a board of mentors that you have. Um, I, I am very positively disposed toward young scholars really aiming for the big grants. I think that's a wonderful thing. And you and you obviously don't have a huge track record behind you, but having people in your corner is a is a very useful thing. Let's see two, two more. <laughs> Two more quick beefs. Go, go for it. Um, I know I'm I'm on a roll. I <laughs> um, feel better. So sometimes I – and this this one will, you know, be a little bit at odds with something that we said last time where we're not – you know, we shouldn't be commenting on funding. That's not really our job. But I'm going to tell you something that irritates me anyway because I need to say it out loud. And that's when someone is proposing a secondary data analysis, which I don't mind. I don't mind that data are out there and someone is proposing money to do a secondary data analysis. But when someone is saying that their secondary data analysis is going to take them three years, two new computers, three GAs, and, and all of it, I'm, I, I, I don't get it. I, I genuinely, you know, in year one, we're going to clean the data. What, what? you know, if they're video, if they're videos that are being transcribed and coded and all that, okay, that I get. Uh, But if it's really a data file sitting somewhere, then I don't understand this three-year plan to do something that you could do in a long weekend with a case of Red Bull. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right. The the last thing that I need to say is, for God's sake, get copies of successful proposals before you write a proposal. Mm. Know what they look like proposals have a feel, they have a vibe, they have a look about them. And everybody at the table can look at a proposal and know that it's written by somebody who has never done it before it looks awkward and, and and I don't I don't want to put a whole lot of undue emphasis on the shiny graphics and all of that but the way that you carefully bring certain aspects of what you're doing to the to the reader's attention the way you highlight certain things you might bold something you might underline it not overkill um, but the way you lay it out really shows a maturity shows that you you know what you're doing. So get copies of successful proposals. They can be in wildly different domains, but you will find commonalities among them. Please, 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 my advice to anybody out there is learn from those. Do you feel better now? Oh my God. Yes.
0: Expanding very briefly on one of those about the bold underline is think about your reviewer is a typical reviewer may have eight or 10 or 12 grants to read a buddy of mine says all of science is motivated by ethanol induced hypoxia because everybody reads grants on airplanes and so it's all all air infused ethanol infused hypoxia but the point is is I've belittled innovation a little bit again just to clarify I'm not taking yeah. a stand against innovation I just don't think it should be a scored criteria I'm cautious about innovation I embrace novelty those are different Things. Mm-hmm. Innovation and novelty are different things. And I got to tell you, when I write my own grants, in bold italics underlined, I will say... If successful, this proposal will make three contributions to the literature that do not currently exist. One, two, three. Don't have the reader distill these from the text. A lot of our science doesn't go past eighth grade. It really doesn't. And we all learned in eighth grade, we were taught in writing a paper, tell them what you're going to say, say it, and tell them what you said. That is an outline for a $5 million grant.
1: Don't make the reader or the reviewer have to work for it, right? Lay it out for them so clearly. Do some of the highlighting for them so that when they come back and look at the proposal, certain things pop and you are in control of that. Uh, so I <laughs> I like what you're saying a lot.
0: Well, and you know, Greg, you can go even one step further. You can actually do that in a way to give the reviewer some language that they can use in their review. So you can say, our approach is characterized by three specific strengths. And mm-hmm. I say, one, two, three. And then I literally will say, there are two potential weaknesses mm-hmm. to this design. And then
1: what word do I use? Uh, that oh for that God's dis- sake disjoint or yeah uh, d- damped or dampen enthusiasm. enthusiasm. I mean these are those only ones you gave me dampen enthusiasm and disjoint. However, oh that one the however, one that you incorrectly start sentences
0: with yes it's gotten me ten million dollars. <laughs> Capital H baby. These are the reasons why we do not believe these weaknesses offset the unique mm-hmm. contributions by the grant. And then the reviewer who is on final approach to Washington, D.C. as in is frantically filling out, can mm-hmm. say under approach, this project is characterized by three strengths. You actually can give the reviewer language to help them evaluate your project and then communicate it to the broader group.
1: That's a great strategy. I got to give you that one. That's a That's really, really nice. Lay it out for them. Um, help them say what they what they need to say, and to preempt the problems that they might have. Going back to uh, what Laurie told you,
0: and so that's it. I go fill up my water. I I uh, flip over the Miles Davis album, and I go to the next one, and I just keep picking away at it.
1: Lather, rinse, repeat.
0: You got it. That's yeah. all I got, man. You got any like parting words of wisdom? No, I think I think I hit my once. parting my.
1: <laughs> uh well what do you want parting words or wisdom i yeah i think i think just i think just getting the copy of uh, copies of successful grants uh, i is just a recommendation that i'm gonna that i would like to be my final recommendation
0: yep i agree completely so that's all we got today folks as always we really appreciate your time and uh joining us we hope you found this of some interest um, and if not, then
1: some mindless entertainment. Thank you very much, everybody. And thanks, Patrick. All right. I appreciate everything. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Is there anybody out there? Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use, and leave us a review. Uh, And be sure to tell your friends. Oh, also be sure to check us out on Twitter, where our handle is at QuantitudePod. Uh, You can also visit our website, QuantitudeThePodcast.org, to check out past episodes and other cool stuff. Today's episode is brought to you by, okay, okay, is brought to you by Reviewer 2, whose keen insights. Whose keen insights and ability to point out the perfect work for us to cite in a revision continue to make the peer review process hugely successful in moving our science for... No, I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to read this. I'm not. Revere Two's an idiot. Nobody likes you, right, Patrick? Huh? Patrick? Huh? Patrick?